like I said, we are going to do the book of Galatians. And you may wonder, why are we going to look at the letter to the Galatians? Um, well, for one thing, this year marks the 500th anniversary of that really important event in the history of the West called the Reformation. And Martin Luther, um, Galatians was really one of his favorite books. It's one of the books that really helped him understand the gospel. He considered it uh, a book that he wrote about over and over and over again. And his writing on the book of Galatians, uh, his commentary is what they called, um, is one of the books that he thought should probably still be read after he died. So that's one reason. But then maybe you've heard of a, a movement that happened in the 1700s. Um, people like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, this thing that's called the Great Awakening. Uh, a bunch of college students, basically, who were at Oxford trying to figure out how to really love God and to be loved by God. And they weren't really sure how to do that, so they were doing things like sleeping on the cold stone floor to prove to God how much they loved him. They were visiting the sick, visiting the prisoners. A lot of good things they were doing, but they weren't really doing them out of a sense of God's love, but to try to earn God's love. And one of the things that they did as they're trying to figure this out is they would get together and basically read out loud from different books. Particularly, they liked to read that commentary by Martin Luther on Galatians. And it really was reading that out loud in basically like a dorm room with a bunch of their friends when the gospel actually became real and clear to them. And it was one of the greatest revivals that the world has ever known. But really, one of the main reasons I want us to study the book of Galatians this year is because Galatians is a great book for people who think they understand the gospel, but maybe have lost their joy. And I find a lot of the people at Belmont are people who've grown up in church, and a lot of those folks are maybe excited about Jesus. A lot of them aren't. And um, the letter of the Galatians is good for all of us. It really is good for all of us. Tim Keller, pastor I think the world of, said this one time. He said, the point of Galatians is that if you think you understand the gospel, that proves you don't. And if you say, oh, I hardly know it, then you're getting it. See, the Galatians were baptized church members who had been taught the gospel by the apostle Paul himself. You would think if anybody understood the gospel and was trying to live it out, it would be them. But Paul says, you basically have almost lost your understanding of grace. What's happened? So it's a, it's a letter that's relevant all the time. And along those lines, I'll just say this. The letters of the Bible in the New Testament were written for us. They weren't just letters that were written, that happened to be kept, that after many centuries people began to revere them so much that eventually they began to regard them as God's word. No, even as you'll see in this very first chapter, Paul understands, he's very self-conscious of the fact that he's speaking on God's behalf, that God has called him to be an apostle. And I'll talk about what that means. That this letter, even as this letter was written, the apostle Peter was writing in 2 Peter 3.16 that Paul writes some difficult things in his letters which people distort and misunderstand as they do the other scriptures. So at the same time Galatians was being written, the Apostle Peter is describing Paul's letters as scripture. 
And in the kind of Judeo-Christian background of the time, that's a very significant word. So the letter to the Galatians was written not just for people in the first century. It was written for us. It is God's word for us. Now, that's a big claim. And if you want to talk about that over a cup of coffee, I would love to talk about that. Maybe you don't have questions about that now, but maybe you will as the semester goes on. Um, and so I'd love to talk about that. Um, but it's also a very unusual letter. And so I'm going to read the first part of it, and then I'm going to pray. And I'm also going to pray for what's been going on down in Texas, because um, I'm sure that it affects even people in this room. It should affect all of us. It really does, doesn't it? Um, so I'm, I'm going to do that. But first we're going to read the beginning of Galatians, and then I'll pray. Galatians chapter 1. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Or maybe, as you know, some older translations say, let them be anathema. As we have already said, so now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's kind of a, an interesting start to the letter. I tried to bring out the tone of it in reading it. It's an angry letter. It's actually the only letter of all the letters that Paul wrote. It's the only letter where he doesn't start out commending and being thankful for the people he's writing to. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into why that is and why that matters for us tonight. Lord, we do thank you for this letter. We thank you that you have not remained silent, but you have spoken. And you've spoken about things that matter. And Lord, as we come to you now, we ask that you would send your spirit to help us understand, and not just understand, but even cherish the message that you have for us tonight. But Lord, we can't speak to you without wanting to remember and ask you for all of those who are suffering tonight in Texas, Louisiana, all the places, all those who even in these hours are afraid for their lives, who are in danger. We pray, Lord, that you would be merciful, that you would be with those who are seeking to help and provide relief, Lord, we pray for your comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I said, it's an unusual letter. Now, I don't know how much you've read of the Bible, but there are some other letters that the Apostle Paul writes to people who are really doing some kind of crazy stuff. For instance, there's a letter to the people in Corinth. It's called 1 Corinthians. And the people in 1 Corinthians were doing things like at the Lord's Supper, they were having orgies and getting drunk. That's kind of crazy. If you, if, you know, I know a lot of you are new to Nashville and you're visiting churches. And I dare say that if you visited a church where they were having orgies at the Lord's Supper, you'd probably be a little freaked out. <laughs> not only that, not only that, Paul, the Apostle Paul says to them, basically, there's a guy in your church who's having an affair, an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law, and not only are you guys not doing anything about it, you're actually proud of it. So that's what's going on in Corinth. And Paul still finds reason to thank them, be thankful for them, and commend them. The people in Galatia, you understand, as we're going to go through this letter, you're going to see this, they're not living crazy lives like that. They're actually very concerned about holiness and living lives that would be pleasing to God. Yet still, Paul is angry. No greeting, thanksgiving, or commending of his readers in Galatians at all. He's angry. But why? It's a good question, why? And I hope that one of the things that you'll come to learn is that it's always a good idea to ask why about anger. It's a good idea to ask why about your anger or about the anger of other people. Because honestly, anger is very revealing. Lurking behind anger, whether yours or whether Paul's, is something ultimate in your life. And so the fact that we have this angry letter is actually a really great thing because we have access to what was ultimate to the Apostle Paul and to the early church. And so, you know, there are people who are like, well, you know, how can you read the Bible and understand what it says? Because these people believe this and these people believe that and everybody's got different ideas. Maybe you've seen that already, right? Maybe you're, you've got roommates or friends and you're already like, whoa, these people believe things very different than me and they say they're Christians, well, the anger of Paul in this letter is actually very helpful because when you, you, you see this anger, it actually reveals what is of ultimate importance. So it's actually a really great thing that we have this angry letter in the Bible because it helps us realize and see it reveals what's the most important thing. What's the thing worth getting this angry about? Maybe you've already had some anger at your new roommates. Or maybe they've had some anger towards you. And maybe you even prayed that you would have a good relationship with your new roommate. And you'd actually get to know them. And what I want to tell you is, if they never get angry at you, you're never going to really realize who they are. And what's really ultimate to them. Now, it may not actually be a good thing that's making them anger. But anger is always revealing. I had an experience myself, actually, when I was in seminary years ago. 
In St. Louis, I remember taking the Myers-Briggs test, and I know psychologists don't like Myers-Briggs, whatever, I don't either. Um, but it, but it, uh, the, the guy who was administering the test said, Kevin, this, uh, this test is revealing some suppressed anger, and you probably want to check that out. And I remember thinking, I'm not an angry person. Oh, I was angry, and then I became a Christian in 10th grade, and I really, God delivered me from my anger. I'm not angry anymore, because Christians don't get angry, right? And... Um, but I, I remember him saying that, and I remember dismissing it. A couple years later, I was down here in Nashville. I was working at a church, and we went back up to St. Louis, where I'd done seminary, to um, basically do what's called lay renewal, which was like basically a week long of extra meetings at this church to try and bring some kind of gospel renewal. And I was part of that. And uh, the guy I worked for, a friend of mine, Scotty Smith, was preaching. And that first night, I was playing in the band, and he's preaching about anger. And I remember, like how things went as that sermon went along. I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. Here he is preaching about anger. And I'm back in St. Louis, and I remember last time I was in St. Louis that that professor told me that I was angry and I needed to explore that. Huh, interesting. He's talking about anger. As the sermon went on, I was like, you know, maybe I, maybe I am kind of angry. The more he talks about it, the more he reveals certain aspects of it. Maybe I am living with a lot of suppressed anger. And as it went on, I began to realize, yes, I've got a lot of anger at God. And I know why. And what's fascinating is kind of God in the same moment revealed what I was angry about and also what he thought about it. Now, why that's important is because I was angry at God because I'd been trying to make God a means to an end. In other words, when I became a Christian, I was much more aware and conscious of my loneliness than I was my sinfulness. And the Christians I knew were actually nice to me. And I thought, if I became a Christian, maybe I would actually have friends. And it just never seemed to work. Just never seemed to work. And here I was, you know, probably at this point, what, like 30 years old, still single, and wondering... Like, where were the friends that the church was supposed to be about? And at the same time I was realizing that, I also realized, you know, I've been angry at God virtually the whole time I've been a Christian because he hasn't done what I wanted him to do. But I never wanted him for him. I wanted him for what he could do for me. And if anybody had a right to be angry, it would be him. But I realized even in that moment, he was, revealed, he was pursuing me saying, I'm the one who is pursuing you, even though you've been trying to use me as a means to an end. See, anger can be very revealing. Anger can be very revealing. Well, what are the things worth being angry about, according to the Apostle Paul? Why is he angry? If you look at verse 6, he, he gets into it here. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Let me just give you a little historical background on what's going on, though we're going to get more into this as we get into chapter 2. But Paul had preached the gospel to the people in Galatia, not because he intended to do that, but because as he was passing through, he got sick. He got sick and he was unable to continue his journey, and he got stuck there for about six months. 
He makes mention of having a problem with his eyes later in the letter. So we're not sure exactly what illness he had, but he basically was stuck there and preached the gospel, and people got converted, and a church began. Then he leaves, and some other people come in after Paul and begin to teach different things. And Paul hears about it, and he writes this letter to the Galatians because he's heard that these people that he loves and that he preached the gospel to have now begun to think of Paul as their enemy. And he's going to get into that more, okay? So that's what he's talking about. So here's the two things he's mad about. He's mad that some people have come in and have distorted, perverted the gospel by teaching a gospel. And that word literally means good news. People have come in and said, this is good news. And Paul says, no, it's not good news at all. It's not good news. It's not even worthy of the name good news or gospel. So he's mad about these people, but he's also astonished and mad that the Galatians have fallen for it. And that they, even though they started out living in grace, they're not doing it anymore. Now, as the letter goes on, we're going to get more of that, okay? But that's what's going on, okay? He's angry because these false teachers have basically made this two-pronged attack on the core of the Christian message, which has to do with the nature of the good news, the gospel, and Paul's authority, And he's outraged that this has happened to the people he loves. Now, in our day and age, it's a little dicey to try and talk about anger and about Christianity. Because a lot of people would say, well, that's why I'm not really sure I even want to be a Christian or I'm interested in Christianity because most Christians I know are angry. They're angry about all kinds of things, especially people that don't agree with them about every little thing. And now you're going to, like, dig into, like, this angry letter? That doesn't seem like a very good idea in our day and age. And it might not be a good idea in our day and age, except, as I said, this is one of the best ways to figure out what's at the heart of the gospel, because Paul's anger is very revealing. The problem is, a lot of people in our day and age don't really think doctrine matters that much. See, you can't understand the letter of the Galatians if you start with the premise that it doesn't really matter what you believe, because Paul doesn't agree with that at all. He thinks that they did believe one thing, and now they believe this other thing, and that's a huge problem worth getting angry about. It also challenges the idea that authority and doctrine don't matter. Because Paul here is not ashamed to assert his authority as an apostle. Now, the Greek is actually very forceful here. Uh, Literally in the Greek, here's how the letter starts. Paul, an apostle, not, ook, not. It's the first word of the letter, not. I don't know about you, but that's not usually the first thing I say. Though that, I love that hymn, not what my hands have done. It's one of the reasons that we sung that. Like, it's important, the purity of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, always involves a not. Not this, but this. And Paul says, I'm an apostle, not by the will of man or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul isn't shy about the special calling that he has. But he's not saying this to boast. 
Because as Paul says in one of his other letters, being an apostle means you're kind of first in line to take suffering and persecution on behalf of Jesus. He's not talking about, I'm an apostle, therefore I'm better than you. No, as a matter of fact, the longer Paul lives as a Christian, the more aware he is of how little he deserves God's grace. In, in one of the earliest letters he writes, he talks about how he is the least uh, of God's, or the last of the apostles. Actually, he talks about how he's the, the least of the apostles. Uh, a little later, in another letter, he talks about how he's the least of all God's people. And in a letter that he writes near the very end of his life, he calls himself what? A chief of sinners. So Paul doesn't understand being an apostle to be about him being puffed up. But he understands if you call into question my apostleship, an apostle is basically an ambassador. You know one thing that's true of ambassadors? They have to relay the message of the king. They're not at liberty to make up their own message. And what Paul's saying is if you attack my authority, then you actually attack the gospel of God and you undermine it. And it's a, it's a really big deal, right? The first thing he says is no. No. I mean, this is a hard thing to say in our day and age, right? Everyone has the right to decide their own religious and moral beliefs. You should never denounce anybody's belief. But you can't read the Bible very far without discovering that God has a very different view. Truth matters. And lurking behind all questions about truth is the question of how do you know what you know? Truth and authority always are linked in the Bible. You know, college is a time when you're going to find a lot of those kind of questions raised. As a matter of fact, Belmont is going to intentionally raise those kind of questions. That's what freshman seminar is all about. Helping you to think about why do you believe what you believe? And do you believe it for good reasons? I think that's actually one of the, the good things about liberal education, is you should be thinking about why do you believe what you believe. And that's what Paul cares about. Why do you believe what you believe? See, in RUF, we're not interested in you just believing the gospel because I say it. Because honestly, if you don't believe it because the Bible has convinced you of it, you won't believe it for long. So in RUF, we're always going to be focused on the scripture. We want you to know what the Bible is and why it matters. We want you to understand what does it mean to be right with God, to have peace with God. Use the theology word justification, and we want you to know how do you live out of this grace, what we call sanctification. Those are the things we're going to focus on, and you know what? Those are the things the Bible focuses on. And the way we go about getting at that in RUF is we're going to regularly preach through books of the Bible because we believe that the things that matter most get emphasized the most, they get repeated over and over again. That way, it's not my agenda, it's the Bible's agenda. Even when it says things that you'd rather not say the first week to a bunch of people that don't know me and don't know any of what RUF's about, and here i got to say, well, you know, not. <laughs> not. You know, that's how you start, right? There's a lot of uncomfortable things in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's a guy that I, I, I like a lot named um, R.C. Sproul who said the best way to grow as a Christian is to read the Bible and under underline everything you don't like because either you need to change or the Bible needs to change. God needs to change. And I believe that. I think that sometimes we just read the Bible to affirm what we already believe. But I hope that by studying the Bible systematically through books of the Bible that we'll be challenged to, to think about why do you believe what you believe? 
And college is a great place for that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that differences among Christians really matter. But some of them do. Now, Paul isn't arguing about every little thing. Again, that's one of the reasons his anger is so helpful, is we're going to find out what are the things worth focusing on and fighting about. So what is the gospel that Paul so zealous defend? A couple points, and then we're done. Look at verse 4. He actually, he actually kind of outlines the heart of the gospel and why it's good news in these first few verses, and we're going to get into it more next week. But, but look at this just for a second. It starts with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. First thing to understand about the true gospel is it's a rescue. It's God to the rescue. It's not God throwing out a life preserver and saying, catch it. It's God saying, you're already dead on the bottom of the ocean floor and you need a rescue. And let me dive in, grab you, pull you up to the surface and breathe new life into you. Then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. If you ask the Apostle Paul, what is grace? What is the gospel? It's God making dead people alive. It's a rescue religion. It's not a give you a helping hand religion. It's a rescue that it brings grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So it's a rescue. How does God rescue? Well, he tells us that too. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. Substitution. Gave himself for our sins. Jesus' substitution in the place of sinners is the heart of the gospel. The way that God rescues people is through substitution. And of course, it's fitting. I think it was Blaise Pascal that said that basically... You know, we substitute ourselves for God. And in the gospel, God substitutes himself for us. It's a rescue religion that involves substitution. And that word gospel is literally the word good news. And here's what you need to understand. I love the way Tim Keller said this one time. He says, the gospel is news rather than instruction. It's news about something God has done that changes everything, rather than just t instruction telling you what to do. It's actually pretty interesting how many churches and how many people who've been raised in Christian churches that if you ask them what is the gospel, they will tell you something like, well, it means to pray that Jesus will come into your heart. It's like, well, you know, that's a good thing to do. But actually the gospel is news, not instruction about what you need to do based on the news. And sometimes the instruction kind of usurps the news. And then it's no wonder that you don't have much joy because then your focus is, on what, is always on what you need to do rather than on what God has done. As a matter of fact, for years I would uh, often meet students over at Bongo Java and I would regularly ask this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian anyway? And I would always get answers in terms of what Christians do. Usually, like somebody, they usually wouldn't look me in the face even. They would look down and they'd say, well, it means to try to read your Bible and try to share the gospel with your roommate and try to love other people. And they'd always say, try to, because they knew they weren't doing those things. And I would say, you know, here's what's the, the big problem, 
is you didn't even hear the question I asked because you're so focused on what you need to do that you've not even thought much about what God did. The gospel is news rather than instruction. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that Christians do, but Christians do things out of who they are and out of what God has done for them. The gospel, the good news, is news rather than instruction. And that's what Luther and those early Methodists needed to understand. When they were trying to impress God by sleeping on a stone floor, they needed to hear about Jesus who lived and died in the place of sinners by his grace to rescue them. Why does God rescue? Well, it's according to his will. Now, let me just tell you, the heart of what is going on in Galatians seems like a very simple thing. I mean, the false teachers of Galatians believed that Jesus was Christ. They believed that he was the Son of God. They believed God the Father. They believed the Holy Spirit. They would have believed everything we sang in that song, that hill song. This, I believe, the song about the creed. The false teachers believed all those things. Do you know what their difference was with Paul? It actually involved the reversal of the order of three things. Let me explain. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus. At that moment, you're saved. And immediately, you proceed to keep the law of God. The false teacher said, believe on the Lord Jesus. Keep the law of God the best you can. And then you're saved. They actually both believed those three things. They just changed the order. And to a lot of people, that might seem like a really fine little distinction. But as we're going to see next week, Paul says, if you reverse the order, you lose the gospel. It's no longer good news at all. If you want to know more about what we're going to be talking about, that's what we're going to be talking about. And then it leads to this last thing. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It leads to a doxology. Right theology should always lead to doxology. Because if it's the true gospel, God gets all the glory. As a matter of fact, that's one of the good tests. As you're checking out different churches or different, you know, Bible studies or whatnot, does God get all the glory? Does God get all the glory? That's why one of the things that we like to do and we're going to do here now is sing the doxology. It's a good reminder of what the heart of the gospel is. So let me pray for us and then we're going to sing.